Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have a real treat because we have with us Doug Robbins. Doug is an M&A advisor with over four decades of experience in the M&A field. Because of his tenure, he has been through seven recessions and, as he says, survived all of them. He also shared that in 2019 he knew that there was something big on the horizon and that had to deal with the economy. He didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but based on his experience, he knew that something was coming. While he was not surprised by the arrival of the pandemic, he was not surprised at all by the economic consequences of that pandemic. I was sort of in the same mode of thinking as Doug was in the beginning of 2019. We were in the 11th year of an economic expansion that has a cycle generally between seven and eight years. We were overdue for something big to happen. And just like Doug, I suspected something was coming, although no one could have predicted COVID or the economic devastation that has resulted from that. Now, getting back to the podcast, in today's episode, Doug shares some really intriguing stories with us and some great takeaways, and I really don't want you to miss them. First, Doug shares about a transaction with a client that had a machine shop and how environmental report that was done by an outside firm ended up cratering a deal that shouldn't have because the building they were doing the economic impact report on was brand new and should not have had any problems. You'll learn what happened and how the deal was cratered because of this economic impact report. And it isn't what you suspect. Next, Doug shares a transaction on an equipment manufacturer that has a single supplier of his product. I want you to listen to what happened to this deal and why. You might guess there were problems because of the single supplier issue, but it isn't what you might expect. As far as deals go, the next deal has a much happier ending and a great takeaway. When you think about how you choose your professional advisors, there's something that you need to hear that is a result of this story. On deals that really turned out well, Doug shares how an owner wanted to sell his business and he was convinced that he was going to die soon. That was the motivation behind selling. You'll learn how he went from the state of mind of thinking he was on death's doorstep to end up running his business for another six years and was able to increase the value of that business from about $750,000 to around $5 million sales price. Finally, Doug leaves us with a transaction where an unsolicited offer went from $6 million to a $14.5 million sale. Now get this, in less than eight weeks. You can't miss this deal story because there's a really golden takeaway from this. Enjoy. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we have Doug Robbins with us and he's going to share some of his experience and some of the transactions he's been involved with over the years. So Doug, without taking any additional time, I'm just going to let you introduce yourself, chat a little bit about your company, 
and where you're located, and we'll jump right into some of those interesting stories that you've been involved in over the years. Well, thank you, Marvin. RobinX was started back in 1974, so we've got, we're in our 46th year selling businesses. And for those who are trying to do the math, I started right out of kindergarten, <laughs> just to, uh, to give you an idea there. And over the years, we've grown and we've shrunk. I remember in 1980, we were up to uh, 16 people. And by 1982, with the recession hitting us, we we're back down to just three of us, me, myself, and I. And we grew again in the 92 recession, gave us a bang. And the, uh, we got hurt pretty badly with the recession in 2008, 2009. We went from 22 people back down to eight. And today we're sitting at about 15 people just getting ready to expand again. And RobinX takes an unusual approach to selling a business. We do complete analysis on a business first. In fact, we do due diligence, including quality of earnings uh, reviews. We need to understand why the business owner wants to sell the business. And so a lot of care and knowledge goes into developing a relationship with that seller, a trusting relationship so that we can really be his, his or her advisor. Uh, in making what is really the most important decision of their lives. And it needs to be done and it needs to be done properly. So we've learned over the years that you really need to take the time to do what's best for the client. And quite frankly, our motto is help our clients make the right decision at the right time for the right reasons by providing experience-based knowledge. So we're pretty fortunate. We've got a great team of people at RobinX with a lot of different experiences, including accountants, engineers, wealth managers, you name it, we've got that pe people on directly on staff and we have a great reach outreach that we can probably connect with just about anybody anywhere we need to get information. All right. With that introduction, why don't we discuss some of those deal stories and transactions? Why don't we start out with some of those that had some challenges to them? One of the transactions that we think about it from time to time uh, was a machining facility that the owner had built a brand new building on a piece of pristine property, i.e. farmland. And it was about a 25,000 square foot facility. He decided it was time to retire and sell. And at that point in time, we asked him to do environmental impact study as part of the preparation for sale. He said, there's nothing wrong with my property. There's no environmental issues. I'm not going to do it. If the buyer wants it done, he can pay to have it done. We pointed out to him that we really should do it ahead of time because if there's a problem, we can control the problem. And if there's no problem, then that's fine, but if there is a problem, we find out later we lose control. If the buyer wants to have the environmental impact study done, then let's get the buyer to do it and he can pay for it. Well, lo and behold, we found a buyer paid a really good price for the business and required the environmental impact study. So are you saying that the buyer is going to pay for the environmental impact study at this point? That's correct. It was the buyer's cost. So the buyer came in with his environmental engineer and they did a very thorough investigation of the business and the facility and the property around it. And as I say, it was a brand new building almost, sitting in a farm, really pristine, well-landscaped, quite quite nice. So you would normally assume under those conditions, new building, it was on a farm, so it wasn't a prior industrial use building where there would have been issues from a past owner of the building or anything like that. You, you would assume that it was going to be clean. Yeah, we did assume it was clean. And I've got a little bit of experience in environmental issues and, you know, there was no <clears throat> distressed uh, shrubs in the place. You know, grass was growing green, the flowers were growing. I mean, but the engineering firm came back and said, we need to do intrusion testing. So why don't you talk a little bit about what intrusion testing is for those that might not know. They wanted to drill half a dozen holes around the place and sample the water and sample the soil. 
And I said, you know, you guys are wasting our time and our money and your client's money. And he said, no, no, we're not. I said, sure you are. This is a waste of time. What the heck are you talking about? The engineer was very patient with me. And he said, come with me and I'll show you. And so we walked back into the corner of the plant. And there was a big screw machine there that was grinding out lots of product. And the fellow who was running it had hurt his back. And he had decided that he wasn't going to carry the cutting oil up to the recycle bin at the other end of the factory. He'd found a crack on the floor. He could just pour it in that crack and it would go away. What the engineer had discovered or, or observed was an oil stain on the floor that was about an inch out on the floor from the crack and about an inch up the side of the wall from the crack over about a 12-inch area. And the fellow had been very careful not to spill the oil anywhere except on the crack which was the reason for the intrusion testing. So they went in, they tested it, they drilled their holes, they come back and they discovered that not only had the cutting oil gone in the crack, it had gone down about 80 feet, hit an under, underground stream and traveled over to the farm next door. So now we had a major cleanup. The cleanup involved putting in water being pumped back through the soil, reverse order of the oil direction, and then capturing the residue and filtering it. And these pumps ran for about four or five months, as I recall. That's a lot of water. Oh, it was a lot of water, a lot, and, and very expensive. I don't mind telling you, he spent $350,000 cleaning it up. And this was the seller now paying for the cleanup, not the purchaser. And the seller had to clean it up because it had gone off his property. If it stayed on his property, he could have got away with not cleaning it up. But during the cleanup process, his major customer, one of his major customers, the guy doing about 40% of his revenue, had decided to move his operation to another city and no longer required the support of my client's machining capability. And he lost revenue equal to 40% of sales and the buyer walked. And uh, that was a major transaction we lost because of environmental issues. Had we done the environmental study at the beginning like we wanted to, we would have identified the problem. We would have gotten it cleaned up. By the time we'd sold the business, we would have given a clean report and the purchaser might have had the problem with the reducing customers, not my client. So let's take a kind of rewind this and dig down and see what some of the takeaways are here. Obviously, you want to be in control. And as you've stated, I think fairly sufficiently and significantly on issues that have a big impact, you want to control those issues. And in this particular case, once the deal is in escrow or you have a letter of intent on the table and someone else is paying for an environmental and impact report, you lose control. And that's what happened in this situation. Absolutely. And had we been able to maintain control, we could have cleaned up the problem and life would have been a lot easier for the seller. And I guess really another issue here is that having 40% of your business with one client is probably on the high side of a revenue concentration as far as your income coming from a significant client. We had explored that at the beginning and the client with the 40% of revenue had dozens of products going through the plant, all for different customers of theirs. So we didn't feel that as long as the service was maintained and the quality was maintained, that would be a, a problem with that customer. Nobody had ever thought that he'd just pack up and move to another city. And he actually crossed the border. He moved from Ontario to Ohio. Okay. Well, sometimes those things come out of left field. But the real driver was here is that it took so long to do the cleanup that under normal situations, the sale and transaction would have been completed. Well, that's right. I mean, bear in mind that when we asked him to do the environmental impact study until when it was done was probably nine months gone by. 
um, because it takes time to find a buyer. It just doesn't happen instantly. And so had we been looking for the buyer and cleaning up at the same time, it would have been a lot easier and we would have had the business sold. Well, I think the big takeaway here is that to maintain control of a transaction, you need to do some pre-due diligence and make sure that you have all of the items that are going to be of a significant issue well understood and resolved before you actually head down that path of positioning the business for sale. And that, and that's so true, Marvin. One of the things that we've learned over the decades is that if you take the time to understand your client and his problems, oftentimes uh, you'll fix the problem. We found that most people come to us to sell their business to trying to solve a problem that they can't solve. So they say, I can't solve the problem, I'll solve the company. We have a program we call COSATA, which stands for Comprehensive Strategic Analysis of Transition Alternatives. And there's actually 14 alternatives to sell a business. In reality, there's variations of each of those alternatives. So there's countless alternatives. But if we had 10 clients come to us and say, we want to sell our business, after we put those 10 through the Cassata, only three would go to market now. The other seven would have a problem that they would want to address or could address. And if they did address, wouldn't sell it. Oftentimes, it's an intergenerational transfer. Sometimes it's buying out a partner. Other times, it's simply a financing problem. They, they can't get enough money to run their business. Um, so when you sit down and look at what the underlying problem is, oftentimes you'll find a solution. Uh, and, and I'm a big solution-orientated guy. Let's, let's understand the true problem, not the symptoms of the problem. I don't want to see the blood on the carpet. I want to see the Band-Aids on the Band-Aids on the Band-Aids that are covering the wound. I want to take all those Band-Aids off and put suture in the wound so that it heals properly. Good analogy there. Well, let's talk a little bit about a transaction we had chatted a little bit earlier in our pre-interview discussion about a courier company you've dealt with. Yeah, that was a, a bit of an aggravating situation. Um, you know, one of the things that's really important when you're selling your business is you've got the proper advisory team on board, a good accountant, a good lawyer, a good tax person, maybe a wealth manager. You, you need to surround yourself with some expertise. In this particular case, my client's lawyer was a close friend, and his lawyer specialized in family law, you know, divorces, wills, estates, and all that kind of stuff. And so when the offer came in to sell the business, he took it to his, his lawyer. We had a $100,000 deposit on this particular file, and the purchaser was uh, from a near city running a business that was larger, but did not have the same technical equipment or knowledge, if you want to call it, that our client had. And so he was buying the business for extra revenue, but also for access to that to that uh, technology. We got a really good price on the business and we we're quite happy about that. But as we ran through the situation, the lawyer for the purchaser delivered his agreement of purchase and sale. So the letter of intent was in place. Everybody agreed on the price, the terms and conditions. Uh, this agreement came in and it went bypassed us. Normally it would come to us and then we'd deliver it to the seller and his lawyer, but it went directly to the seller's lawyer. And I got a call from the seller one day and he said, Doug, give the guy his $100,000 back. This deal is never going to go to, go to go together. And I said, what are you talking about? And, well, you should see the agreement his lawyer saying, rah, 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 rah. And he really ran and raving. I said, well, wait a second. And do you still want to sell a business? He said, yes. I said, did you were you happy with the price? He said, yes. I said, were you happy with the terms and conditions? He said, yes. I said, so, so what's the agreement that's the problem? And he said, yes. I said, well, send me the agreement. Let's take a look at it. And the agreement came the next day and we got into it. And it was it was a dog's breakfast, to be quite candid. So I got a hold of the purchaser and the purchaser's lawyer. 
went down and met with him, discovered that the purchaser and his lawyer were the best of friends. They played golf together. They played hockey together. You know, they just were almost inseparable. But his law specialty was real estate. He'd never done a share transaction before. So when his buddy said, I'm buying a company and I'm buying the shares, the lawyer went to the law library, pulled up an agreement of purchase, sale to handle the share transaction, filled in the blanks and sent it off. What he didn't realize was two things. First, he was dealing with an agreement to buy shares of a publicly traded company. So there's all kinds of stuff in that agreement you don't need in a regular agreement. And he didn't realize the seller's lawyer wasn't skilled in business law either. To make a long story short, we brought in a third law firm to teach those two law firms how to do the transaction and to oversee the, the legals on it so we could put the transaction together. Just for clarification, on one side of the transaction, we have a divorce lawyer. And on the other side, we have a real estate lawyer, neither of which have ever dealt with selling a, a company in the transactional law that goes along with the purchase and sale of a company. And they're using fill-in-the-blank forms from the law library and, of all things, a public company, which is probably three inches thick in documentation, right? Easily, easily. I couldn't believe it when I got the document. Yeah, well. So what's the takeaway here? Well, the bottom line is if you're going to sell the most prized possession of your lifetime, one you spent a lifetime building, you need to get competent people on your team. I'll be candid if he didn't have us on the team representing the seller. And somebody else had brought that offer and that transaction may never have closed. It would have been looking for another buyer, may never have sold the business. So the bottom line is to make sure you've got competent people working with you, a competent accountant, competent lawyer, a good wealth manager, because what are you going to do with the money when you get it? And, and all those things are important. A good intermediary is important too. Mind you, I'm a little bit biased on that topic. Yeah. Well, you know, when you talk about competent people, I think there's competencies in a lot of different areas of specialty. I mean, divorce lawyers have a specific competency in their area of expertise, but it doesn't expand into another. And I think so often that I've seen time and time again, an attorney is an attorney is an attorney. Well, that is not absolutely true. You have specific transaction law specialists that all they do is handle business transactions. And so they know the ins and outs. You really need that specialty on your deal team, not a specialist in another field as far as laws go. And the same thing goes for attorneys or CPAs and other people that you have on your team. And that's very true, Marvin. One of the things that's important, some of our transactions have got lots of complexity. You've got environmental law. You could have employment law. You could have unions. Uh, you could have a franchise. You can have real estate issues with leases or what have you. I mean, I, I had one transaction where it was a fairly large transaction. There were five different lawyers on the buyer's side with their own areas of expertise as we went through the, the, the situations. Yeah, the larger and more complicated a deal, you do have that, the area of specialty. That's exactly right. And the point being that these lawyers wouldn't cross in each other's area. Mind you, they're from a, law, law, a large law firm and they're well-disciplined. <clears throat> but if you get Charlie Brown, the local lawyer who does a, div a divorce one day and a uh, will the next day and he does a real estate house sale the day after that, he's not going to have the knowledge and skill to to service the need of a, of a, a business is being sold. Yeah, and it, it really depends on a lot of times where you're located, what access you have to competent counsel. If you're in a smaller community, you may not have the network to find those type of people. And the key there is to have a lawyer who understands his limitations and go outside to other people to fill his, his areas of weakness or, or lack of knowledge. That's advice well given there. Can you pull out another transactional story that might have some takeaways? You know, we, we were involved in a sale of a business 
that was in the recreational business. Like recreational equipment or something like that? Yeah, recreational stuff and supplies and things like that. And it was a proprietary product that they represented. They had about 250 customers, but only one supplier. And the supplier and the chap had been good friends for years, and the supplier was sold to somebody else. And um, so their friendship had sort of waned, but there was no supply agreement. We hadn't paid particularly close attention to it because we were more concerned about the client base, that there was no concentration of, of customers, that the product was churning, there was no dead inventory, receivable was being collected properly, advertising, marketing was working, like everything seemed to be working well in this. And we found a buyer for it. And when the offer came in, it was obviously subject to uh, being able to maintain a supply agreement. The supplier said, oh, you're selling great. Well, I'm just going to cancel the contract. So you you went out and approached the supplier and said, we have a new buyer and we want to get the agreement ratified. That's correct. And and he said, no, I, I'm going to keep it myself. I've been thinking about canceling this agreement anyway. I know all your customers because we've been drop, drop shipping product to them. So uh, goodbye. Um, so the transaction didn't close, I can tell you that. And I can tell you there's a lawsuit involved in it now, but there was no supplier agreement. So let's, re let's rewind, just make sure our audience understands here the sequence of events here. So the supplier, who was the sole supplier and the owner of the business, this recreational equipment business, were really good friends. And because of that, they had a handshake agreement. And it went on for years and years and things were going well. And then that supplier sold and that agreement and relationship moved on to the new supplier owner. And that's who you were dealing with where there was no relationship in place between the seller of the business and the supplier that he had inherited the company relationship. Exactly. And so no agreement, a lot of room for interpretation. And so he just decided to move on without his customer and go directly to his customers. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we're very careful now. When we see any supplier concentration, any particular product line that you're relying on this product line for your business to survive. Maybe it's a small percentage of your revenue, but without that, you're in trouble. Then we want to see supplier agreements. We want to see alternative sources of supply, or, or we're going to have a major issue. And we want to get that cleaned up before we go to market. Absolutely. All right. Well, let me make another comment here. It seems like you have nailed, uh, I think, a really crucial takeaway on the head here, and that is make sure as far as concentration going, you had one supplier, and that's kind of a red flag for a buyer who is looking at something. He was really going to do a lot of due diligence on that. And if there is a concentration, you really need to make sure those supplier agreements are really locked down and bulletproof before you actually go to market. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Haven't got your supplier of a product. You haven't got a business. Yeah. Well, this sounds like what happened here. He, <laughs> for sure. The supplier kind of moved on without him and he had to scramble to get somebody else, I'm sure. Why don't you take a few minutes and talk about a couple of transactions that had some good upside to it and went well and worked out really well for the sellers? I think it's, it's really important that you get to know your client well understand his motivations his needs his wants his fears so you're speaking from an intermediary getting to know his client so from a client's perspective or a seller's perspective they want to get to know their intermediary and that intermediary needs to get to know them right we need a trusting relationship between both parties he needs to trust me and i need to trust him and so one of the things we like to know is 
what keeps the client awake at night? What's his issues? What's his problems? And we had someone come to us a number of years ago, eight years ago now. He said, look, I, I want to sell my business. And I looked the guy in the eye and he said, well, you don't look that old. How old are you? And he said, I'm 54. So that's kind of, kind of young to be selling a nice business like this. Why do you want to sell it? He said, well, my dad died from heart condition when he's 58. My brother died recently from a heart condition. He was 59. So I figure I'm as good as gone. So I want to get this thing put in order for my family. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. I thought, wow. So anyway, make a longer story short, we sent him off to a, a medical clinic in, in Canada. It's called the Cleveland Clinic. And what is it called? The Cleveland Clinic. Is that in Canada or is that down in the States? Well, they're in both, but they have an off operation in Canada. And uh, complete assessment. Let's find out. If you're going to die in, in two or three years, maybe you're not. Anyway, make a long story short, he this, they discovered that he really needed just to change his eating habits a little bit. He was maybe 15, 20 pounds overweight, but nothing serious. And, uh, you should live for a nice, long, healthy life. It's unfortunate about your other family members, but you know you appear to be in good health. And you should get a physical every year, which is a good selling process for the Cleveland House, I guess. But anyway, he followed that to the, to the letter. And then we took a look at his business and we found that he was he was a, a millwright. We're there. That's a company that goes and repairs other factories for, for factory owners. So kind of a maintenance company, service company to maintain equipment. Yes, yes. And they do construction renovations and, you know, maybe small additions and changes and things like that. So anyway, he had a small workshop uh, in a barn where they might do some prefab cutting and welding of things that they would need. And as we walked through the barn, it was in February uh, of that year, and it was a really cold day. And I observed that the half a dozen guys working in the barn were wearing snowmobile suits because the wind was blowing through the cracks in the barn. <laughs> I said, Jesus, you know, I just couldn't believe it. And I, I said to the guy, this is uh, unusual. It's always like this. He's yeah. He says, I'm a little concerned. I might have a problem with the Department of Labor. Do you think they'll find me if they find this? I said, no, they won't find you. They'll put you right in jail. <laughs> this is the worst I've ever seen. So he had a neat, an interesting business. It was kind of a, a specialty business. Um, and we discovered that he was weak in his management team. What level of volume did he get in sales? He was doing just under $4 million. Mm -hmm. What would you have anticipated the business if you decided to proceed and sell it at that time? What would it have brought in an offering price? Oh, if he was lucky, he would have got three quarters of a million dollars. It really wasn't worth a lot. Uh, it was below our threshold, quite frankly. We, we want to work, work with companies worth more than that. Anyway, so we, we convinced him that he needed to do a bunch of things. And one of them was we needed to buy a building for him so we could have a proper building and we needed to get a controller and we needed a plant manager and we needed a general manager and we needed somebody to go and sell. So we helped him buy a building. We got a 15,000 square foot building. Um, we were able to finance it 125% because of his track record uh, and they needed the extra money over and above the purchase price of the building to equip the building and allow it to take all his equipment in place. Fast forward five and a half years the business was now doing $11 million. So he went from three or four million up to 11 million. And this is from a guy that was going to sell his business because he was going to die. That's correct. That's right. correct. <laughs> and and uh, of course, he goes for his physical every year. He does that with, with just like a religion. Mm -hmm. And anyway, um, we sold the business. We got $5 million for the company. Uh, the real estate was put into a separate business for reasons, uh, for good planning reasons. And he kept the real estate. Mind you, it was paid off over that five-year period. And so now he's collecting rent of about $150,000 a year, plus he sold the business. And we were able to structure it. In Canada, we have some really neat tax laws called capital gains exemptions. 
we set up a family trust. We got five capital gains exemptions. And so at the end of the day, there was virtually no income tax paid on the sale of the business. So he did very well. I can tell you he's still alive and well. And uh, in fact, I had dinner with him just uh, three or four weeks ago. So I guess the real takeaway here, Doug, if we were to do a postmortem on that transaction is that it's kind of an insightful one that doesn't come up very often here, but I think you bring to surface a real interesting concept of dealing with the underlying problem. And if the problem is fixable, then fix it. And if it's not, maybe you want to go ahead and sell. But in this particular case, you were able to fix the problem that he had and kind of reposition and really plan for a more methodical exit than a fire sale exit just because he thought he didn't have very long to live. Exactly true. And I think there's two things there. First, we dealt with the underlying problem, but his his personal life expectancy beliefs. And the second problem we dealt with was the way the business was being operated. There was a better way to do it. We get paid for our time. So I don't mind putting time into that. I, I really want to sell businesses because that's where we make our profit when we sell it and get our commissions. But um, I, I don't mind helping a client do the right thing for the right reasons at the right time. I just take our time and do it properly. Well, I like the whole concept, though, and identifying an underlying problem. And if it's fixable, fix it. And I think that's a great takeaway. Sometimes they aren't fixable, but more often than not, if you know what the issues are and you get some good advisors around you, you can fix the problem. Oftentimes, the problem is the client himself. <laughs> you know, they get stuck in their Coke bottle, if you will, and, and they don't see the world outside that uh, that thick glass. And, and uh, there's lots of easy solutions if you stop and analyze your core problem. Let's get down to the core problem. What is the problem? How do we fix the problem? What are the alternatives? Well, I like that example of the Coke bottle because for those of us that are old enough to remember those six-inch high Coke bottles that were really, really thick and green in color, if you were standing inside of the Coke bottle, everything you see would probably be very hazy and unclear. And now when we have all aluminum cans, that <laughs> metaphor is not really applicable. But when you talk about that example, I think it's a great visualization of someone standing outside of the Coke bottle versus standing inside of it. What's well, more important to not just be outside the Coke bottle, it's being a distance away so you can see where the Coke bottle is in relationship to everything else. Is it in a, a case of 24s, a skid of 50 cases? Is it in a warehouse filled with Coke or beverages or all kinds of other stuff? The world changes when you step back. Most people are too busy running their day-to-day -day operations that they don't take time to step back and look uh, at their own business and their own business issues, problems, and opportunities. Great example, Doug. So let's wrap things up here today with one more transactional story that will have a good takeaway for those listening in. Well, my view is that when we're selling a business, the most important thing to do is to find the right buyer. And sometimes finding the right buyer means we need to have the right business for sale too. So we had a client come to us a number of years ago who was doing revenue of about $3 million in sales and a napkin valuation on his business indicated it might be worth a million dollars. And we took a look at it and he had a proprietary product that was patented that he owned. He was having it manufactured through a subcontractor and he was selling and distributing it himself. His distribution market was relatively short area, small area. And we said, look, why don't we add some distributors and maybe your sales will grow substantially because 3 million is not a bad number, but we could probably sell a lot more of that product. So he went away thinking about that. And uh, he called me up about two, two and a half, three years later. He said, Doug, I followed your advice. We've 
doubled our sales. We're at $6 million now. And and uh, I've added a whole bunch of distributors and life is wonderful. But somebody's knocking my door and they've offered me $6 million for the company. So this is an unsolicited offer that just someone called him up and had done their own homework and they, I guess, were in the same business. This was a competitor or someone else? It was what we call a near competitor. Um, similar products, similar customers, but not directly competing. So I said, well, do you really want to sell? He said, well, yeah, I think I'd like to sell. And he had some good reasons for selling. He said, but uh, um, I just don't know if this is the right buyer. So we got down and did the analysis. And So what kind of analysis would you have done? Obviously, you have an offer on the table. One of the things you want to know is, is the offer reasonable? So the most important value, there's 39 different ways you can value a company, but the most important valuation is future discounted cash flow. So we needed to take a look at what the future held for the business. So you look at where it's been, where it is today, and where it's liable to go. And this looked to me like the fellow who was buying the business had done a future discounted analysis on it, and he felt that the business was going to continue to grow. And so we looked at this buyer and said, you know what? He's got a bigger market footprint than you have. He's going to take your product and sell it through his bigger network. So his sales are going to grow, and that's why he's offered you uh, $6 million, because the business isn't worth $6 million where it sits today might be worth three and a half or four. So let's peel back the onion on that a little bit. So just for clarification, you did your homework and found out what type of company it was and how they would plug in this acquisition into their distribution network and could somewhat project what the increased valuation would be or revenue driven into their distribution channel and what benefit this acquisition would have to them. Right. And so what that concluded for us was that he had a good offer on the table because he, he didn't have the resources or the ability to ramp up the distribution network to that degree. But I said to him, let's, let's pause and do a little bit of research. And so we researched the buyer and we want to know who his competitors were. And we discovered a competitor actually out of Boston who was 10 times bigger than the buyer who was trying to buy my client's business. I'll make a long story short. Six weeks later, we sold the business to the Boston company for $14.5 million. Oh, so I just want to get this in context here, Doug. So when he approached you, your client approached you originally, he had a maybe a million dollar a year business, something like that? The value, he was doing about $3 million in revenue and his value was worth about a million, yes. And so you made a couple of recommendations on increasing his distribution channels, which he did. Yes. And then he came back and said, well, I'm now bumped up five, six times that amount, and I have an offer on the table for $6 million. That's correct. He was pretty ex- I can imagine he'd be pretty pleased, especially since it's unsolicited and he hasn't done anything to get that type of offer other than execution. But I want to understand just from the time that they had that unsolicited offer until you had done your research and due diligence and stuff on the buyer and his competitors and everything, and you now had an offer on the table for, what did you say, $14.5 million? Yes. Uh, what was the time? The timeline between the, the first offer and the, and the final offer was probably seven, eight weeks, maybe nine weeks. Holy smokes, that's a, quite a bump in, in a couple of three months, huh? Well, it came from finding the right buyer. You have to keep in mind that everybody's looking to increase profitability. First way to increase profitability is increase revenue or to reduce overheads or a combination of both. So if you have the ability to take a product line through an existing customer base, you can increase revenue pretty, pretty significantly, pretty quickly. This purchaser 
you know, after we closed the transaction, we were breaking, having dinner and having a glass of wine, indicated he thought he could take my client's sales up to 25 or 30 million bucks from six. Well, that's exciting for both sides of the transaction. Well, that was what we call a win-win. Everybody was a winner. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess what you're saying, you've mentioned it a couple of times here that the real key takeaway on this type of transaction or any transaction is really finding the right buyer and taking the time to understand really what you have and what the buyer needs. And if you can find a fit between what you have and what the buyer needs, and it's a hand in a glove type of situation, one and one equals three. I guess that's what you're saying. Exactly right. In, in having the right reason for selling, the right time to sell your business. Uh, if you don't need to sell, why should you sell? Um, we've got clients who are 80 years old who we've advised not to sell because they had the right structure in place and there was no advantage to selling the business. So, so each one's unique and different. We've had the good fortune of working for over a thousand clients. I actually have to be honest, I've lost count, but um, it's it's probably more like 2,000 clients now. But we, we use the, the analogy of a 1,000 clients. And, and not all those clients are ready to be sold or should be sold. There's other alternatives that make better sense. And nothing better than turning a business over to the sun and helping the sun nurture, putting an advisory board in place to help that sun grow. Um, we use an industrial psychologist and any client who comes to us who hasn't got a detailed plan of what he's going to do after selling business. He does not have a life after business plan. We want to send him to the psychologist to make sure we're, making, we're doing the right thing to sell his business. I had a client once after we sold his business, it was bankrupt. We put a turnaround team in it. We sold it for $7 million and two and a half months later, he tried to commit suicide. And the psychologist came back and blamed us for the attempted suicide because he said, look, you sold his reason for living. Uh, he had no reason to get up in the morning anymore. He'd worked 80 hours a week for all his life. And all of a sudden, the business was gone. He had nothing to do. All his friends were business-related. Uh, he had nobody to talk to, and he just decided to end it. So we pay real close attention to our clients, our clients' needs. And if they haven't got a life after business plan, we want to create one for them before we'll take it to market. I think that's good advice. Well, Doug, we appreciate you taking the time and spending this with us and for all the transactions that you've shared with us and some of those takeaways, which I think will be really insightful for those that subscribe to the podcast and listen to these different episodes and are picking up tips along the way of how they can use some of the takeaways in these podcast episodes to think about their own business and how they can position it for sales. So if someone wanted to reach out to you, Doug, and get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, probably the best way is just go on our website, robinx.com, and you find my picture, my phone number, or email addresses, or anything else you want. Or you can and just call 1-800-ROBINX. Uh, that works too, or you can uh, just email me DMR at Robin X. We're pretty easy going. All right. Well, again, thanks very much for joining us here, Doug. And until our next episode, this is Marvin L. Storm for Business Exit Stories Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories Podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.